0: When it comes to our food, we're really talking about glyphosate because that's the entity that systemic in the plant, moves throughout the plant, and then accumulates in the parts of the plant that we normally consume. Those are the growth points, the seed and reproductive structures, and and the root tissues. So, you know, for potatoes or carrots or uh, Cassava, any of those root crops, uh, we're going to have an accumulation of glyphosate in them, but not the surfactant. You're listening to Food Integrity Now with your host, Carol Gervais.
1: Hello and welcome to Food Integrity Now. I'm Carol Gravet. I am a certified holistic nutritionist and the host of the show. At Food Integrity Now, we like to investigate and explore what's happening in our food supply so that you can make wise decisions for your health and for your family's health. And I'd like to give a big shout-out to Ben Sound Music for our intro and outro music. I am honored to have as my guest today Dr. Don Huber. Dr. Huber is a Professor Emeritus of Plant Pathology at Purdue University and is a graduate of the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College and Industrial College of the Armed Forces. He was serial pathologist at the University of Idaho for eight years before joining the Department of Botany and Plant Pathology at Purdue University in 1971. His agricultural research, the past 60 years, has focused on the epidemiology and control of soil-borne plant pathogens. He retired in 1995 as Associate Director of the Armed Forces Medical Intelligence Center, as a colonel, after 41 years of active and reserve military duty. He is an active scientific reviewer, consultant to academia, industry, and government, and international research cooperative with projects in 11 countries as well as in the U.S. He is the author or co-author of over 300 journal articles. Today, we're gonna be talking with him about the latest information about GMOs and glyphosate. Hi, it's Carol Grave, and I am a certified holistic nutritionist, a life coach, and the host of Food Integrity Now. What you eat and how you eat can greatly affect the way you look and feel And whether or not you get sick. If your immune system is compromised, you might have brain fog, allergies, low energy, depression, or worse, have a disease. A poor diet can lead to diabetes, cancer, Alzheimer's, and virtually all other diseases. I take great pride in working with individuals and groups and seeing how they create such positive changes in their lives. I offer one-on-one coaching packages, or we can design a package just for your group. To find out more, go to foodintegritycoaching.com or call me at 415-302-7100 for your free consultation. I offer phone and Skype sessions, and this really is all about quality of life let me assist you to have the best quality ever. Hi, it's Carol again. Do you drink almond milk? Do you know that packaged almond milk contains all sort of nasty additives like carrageenan and barely contains any actual almonds? The good news is that you can make fresh almond milk at home in minutes. Once you taste the creamy fresh flavor of homing almond milk, you'll never go back. I make my almond milk at home With a Nutiana nut milk bag. It's great, easy to use, easy to clean, and makes my almond milk silky smooth. Buy yours today by searching the Nutiana nut milk bag on Amazon. That's N U T I A N A, nut milk bag. Or go to Nutiana.com. You're going to love this bag. Dr. Huber, welcome to Food Integrity Now.
0: Well, thanks, Carol. I appreciate the opportunity to
1: visit with you. We're honored to have you on the show, and I think we last spoke about three years ago, and I know that you and others have been doing more research, and there's a lot more information about the effects of GMOs and glyphosate on not only our soil, but plants, animals, and humans. Let's step back a little bit and recap some of the information for our listeners about glyphosate which is as we know is the active ingredient in Roundup. Uh, One of the things that is so important there's so much information right now about the importance of having a healthy microbiome or having a healthy gut especially for brain health. So let's talk a little bit about some of the ill effects of glyphosate on soil organisms, which, of course, are not that much different than the microflora in our gut. So let's start there.
0: Well, glyphosate is a patented antibiotic. Most people don't uh, realize that. But it's it's, uh, quite a wide-spectrum antibiotic that also has been shown to induce antibiotic resistance uh, or resistance in organisms to a number of our other regularly used antibiotics. So because of its broad spectrum activity, it also has the ability to induce resistance in a lot of our pathogens to our common antibiotics as well as being uh an antibiotic in its own uh, characteristics, but it's an antibiotic against the beneficial organisms rather than against the pathogens, so that it stimulates the pathogens by increasing their virulence, their ability to cause disease, and also suppressing a lot of the natural defense mechanisms that animals and plants have or that we have in the soil with other organisms that would suppress the pathogens. So it's just a a very unique chemical in its broad spectrum activity and uh, extensive damage to the environment.
1: Well, we also know that glyphosate is a mineral chelator. Can you recap a little bit about what that means?
0: Yes, a uh, chelator is a chemical that can grab onto another element and change its characteristics. So some chelators can be very beneficial and we use those, EDTA and a number of other uh, chelators like citric acid or malic acid. But glyphosate, again, when it grabs onto a mineral element, Uh, it immobilizes it so that it's no longer physiologically available for use in in an animal or human. And uh, you have a, a mineral deficiency then that is induced, even though the mineral may be present, when it's bound with the glyphosate, physiologically it can no longer function in those critical Physiological areas for uh, enzyme action or uh, protein uh, activity. So we see a lot of mineral deficiency now, even though there appears to be a mineral, uh, plenty of minerals available, but if it's chelated with the glyphosate, which many of them are. They're not physiologically available to do us any good. They're just chunks of gravel sitting around in our digestive tract or in the environment for us.
1: I know one of those minerals is manganese. What happens, what could happen if we're deficient in, say, manganese?
0: Well, manganese is involved in over 28 enzymes as the key. That cofactor that turns the enzyme on or off that regulates it. When we're deficient in manganese, then you see a, a deficiency in hormone systems and, uh, in a plant and photosynthesis, uh, so that you see yellowing and, and those characteristics. But all of the minerals are involved in in critical physiological functions as cofactors for different enzymes. Uh, in fact, that's how glyphosate works as a as a herbicide, as a weed killer, is by tying up critical in, critical minerals that are involved in those physiological processes we talk about the shikimate pathway and other physiological processes but it's actually the chelation or the immobilization of the cobalt or uh, manganese uh, iron or other elements that it is immobilizing that are responsible for that uh, shutdown of physiological activity and manganese is one that's very Uh, actively uh, immobilized by glyphosate.
1: Okay, and we also know that glyphosate blocks uh, C1 metabolism. And why is that a concern?
0: C1 metabolism is involved in detoxification of the body. That's how you get rid of formaldehyde and other natural toxins that are produced during the physiological process. When uh, you block C1 metabolism, then formaldehyde accumulates, and as the formaldehyde accumulates, it depletes the glutathione. The physiology, the body responds uh, to the formaldehyde by uh reacting with glutathione as an antioxidant and uh, when with the accumulation of, glutath- of formaldehyde then glutathione is depleted well that's our immune system or a big chunk of it so that you essentially have an induced immune deficiency type disease then that develops uh, because you're to no longer produce or maintain your glutathione defense uh, function. There.
1: Wow, that's amazing! And uh, as many of us know, that glutathione is just a really powerful antioxidant and very important for our immune system. So, if it's depleting the glutathione, that is a that's a big problem.
0: It's it's not just the depletion that's involved, but the regeneration Can you s- is also blocked. W-
1: what what do you mean by that? Can you speak more about that, Doctor Huber? W-
0: well, when glutathione is is involved in those physiological processes of defense, that then it will will normally be restored to uh, your body will make more glutathione, and it'll continue in that function. With glyphosate, that is blocked, and also the GMO crops. When you disrupt the integrity of the genetic code, whether it's from insertion or whether it's from deletion or silencing, uh, again, that C1 metabolism is a common pathway that is blocked and uh, that depletes the glutathione because of the increase in formaldehyde. But the glutathione then is not regenerated because those systems also are blocked.
1: Hmm. Okay, and so the whole issue of glyphosate is just... Not only wreaking havoc on the health of our soil and and plants and animals, but on on human health, and especially in our gut. Considering that all the latest information, how having a healthy gut is really important to having a healthy brain, I mean, this, this is even more detrimental than we initially thought.
0: Yes, our immunity, our brain function, all of those things start in our stomach or in our GI tract. And that microbiome that we have in our GI tract is critical to our hormone levels, our our neurological chemicals, our immunity, that whole process all starts there and, and is maintained there so that... The organisms that are responsible for that, for those critical functions, are all very sensitive to glyphosate. They're also uh, those organisms that suppress uh, the pathogenic Clostridia and E. coli and Salmonella and Listeria. All of those pathogens then are resistant to glyphosate so that when you take out large groups of beneficial organisms, the pathogens then have an opportunity to fill the void. In nature, we don't have have voids. So when you take one group out, another group, uh, in this case the pathogens, are able to colonize. And so we see the diseases like chronic botulism or chronic fatigue in humans. Uh, leaky gut irritated bowel syndrome all of those diseases are a result of changing that biological balance in the gut microbiome so we have what we call gut dysbiosis that uh, imbalance in our microbial flora uh, in our GI tract that uh then results in in these very serious diseases that uh, would normally be no problem for us if we had a healthy gut. And our, of course, you can have a fecal transplant, or you <clears throat> that can uh, uh, provide those organisms. But then you need to change the cause to start with, and glyphosate residues in our food and in our water and environment uh, as an antibiotic are very damaging to that gut microbiome
1: and I liked what you said about um, going to the to the cause and you know I'm a nutritionist and uh, the first place I start with people is strongly suggest they they heal their gut and then eat organic food so they don't keep keep that glyphosate going in their body and i know it's hard to avoid because there's so much contamination but eating an organic diet certainly is a great place to start Uh, makes makes
0: makes a difference
1: yeah so one of the things that we were learning about is how glyphosate works with surfactants and adjuvants can you comment about the recent claims by some that the surfactants are worse than the glyphosate? Do you agree with that? Or or can you explain a little bit about how that works?
0: Yeah, I think we need to put that in perspective. There's no question that the surfactants can, and other additives can be more toxic than the active ingredient. Uh, but that would be a situation where you're, for the, pesticide applicator, are uh, where it's uh, dumped into the water source, and glyphosate is dumped into a lot of our, our ponds and streams as a aquatic weed control mechanism. Uh, that would be where you would see the uh, residue from. Uh, the surfactants and that in food the surfactants uh, don't penetrate into the plant any significant level so that and they would be washed off uh, in the processing of uh, most food products it's the glyphosate that is systemic so that uh, you'll have the Surfactants, uh, in some environmental situations, such as where it's used for aquatic wheat control in rivers and streams, but in, in food products, it's glyphosate that is the concern because the surfactants aren't uh, in the, in the uh, product, but glyphosate is systemic, moves throughout the plant, and accumulates in the plant, where the surfactants don't. Depends on what the exposure level is.
1: So let me see if I understand this correctly, because I really want to learn about this. Basically, the surfactants and adjuvants can make the delivery of the glyphosate into the plant or the body to make it stronger, but you don't actually get the effects of the surfactants and adjuvants into the food, but it makes the glyphosate more potent. Is that accurate?
0: Right. They're they're mixed with the uh, spray solution with the glyphosate uh, so that you reduce surface tension on the leaf. You get better spreadability or for sticking the chemical on the leaf to permit uh, absorption over a longer period of time are to damage the leaf surface. Uh, most of the adjuvants and surfactants that are used with glyphosate are also used in many other products. So we have a lot of exposure to the surfactants uh, because there are a lot of places where you want to have you know, reduce the water tension and have smooth flowability. Uh, a lot of our cosmetics and soaps and uh, detergents will have the similar surfactants to what is used in our pesticides so that, uh, there are other sources of exposure to the surfactants, uh, than, than just glyphosate. Almost any pesticide, but also many cosmetics and dishwashing compounds, and those things are really surfactants, and uh, we have have additional exposure levels to the surfactants. But when it comes to our food, we're really talking about glyphosate because that's the entity that uh, moves is systemic in the plant, moves throughout the plant, and then accumulates in the parts of the plant that we normally consume. Those are the growth points, the seed and reproductive structures, and, and the root tissues. So, you know, for potatoes or carrots or uh, cassava, any of those root crops, uh, we're going to have a, an accumulation of glyphosate in them, but not the surfactant. Uh, the surfactant might be on leafy vegetables, uh, right after it's, uh, drifted on. If, if it was used as a, a drift, you know, on an adjacent field or something, there might be a little drift. But again, the primary toxin that we're concerned about is this strong mineral chelator and antibiotic that we refer to as glyphosate
1: okay thanks for clearing that up because i think there's been a little bit of misinformation out there about the surfactants and adjuvants and that makes that makes a lot of sense so there's also a lot of new information about chronic wasting disease in wildlife that uh, Mm -hmm. we believe is connected to glyphosate uh, used after, um, what you know, glyphosate is used as a pre-harvest desiccant, which is a a drying agent. Can you talk a little bit about that, Dr. Huber?
0: Well, when it's used as a desiccant, uh, you could have, especially deer and elk uh, come in and graze on those plants that have been sprayed very recently, there you have the glyphosate in a high concentration and right on the tissue that's being grazed on. So we don't really understand the mode of action of either the formation or the uh, transmission of the prion-type diseases. This would be chronic wasting disease in deer and elk or uh, mad cow disease, the VSE, or, or the variant creutzfeldt jakob disease. Uh, we have some hypotheses that, uh, we, you know, that we work with and work from. Some of those uh, aren't always consistent with the uh, science that's being developed now. There's a, uh, It's been thought that just the folded protein acts as an infectious agent, the normal protein being folded uh, because of some abnormal or some change in the environment. And... Uh, That then you have an infectious entity that's able to uh, replicate and also cause other proteins to become infectious. Uh, There are two other hypotheses that fit the data a little closer than just that spontaneous generation that's commonly thought of, and one of them is uh, Dr. Purdy's Research and on uh, mad cow disease in England, he had an untimely death, so it hasn't his research hasn't been pursued extensively. But what he showed was that when organic phosphate compounds, such as the insecticide, uh, that was used for a warble grub control and poured right down the spine of an animal, that that was a very strong mineral chelator and that it brought about a change in the uh, metalloprotein portion of, of the protein, the metallic part, which in the brain is copper, and... The copper then would be chelated by the phosmet insecticide and replaced by manganese. In that replacement then, you had uh, a much stronger molecular pull on the protein and it distorted its shape, caused the folding, and then uh, self-replication from that point on. That work is is supported by a number of of uh, other studies. Uh, it's not fully accepted, and uh, the other hypothesis or proposal for our formation of prions is uh, spiroplasma, <clears throat> uh, cell wall free bacterium. That can also cause the uh, protein folding and disruption. There.
1: What do you There's mean the, by protein folding? Uh, you know, our listeners may want you uh, know to understand this a little bit more for, fully, as do I.
0: We have the normal protein. That the protein function is related to the morphology of the protein. In other words, how it interacts in. Uh, from a molecular standpoint. And what happens then, well, you also, with those proteins, you have a metallic part of that protein that is, we refer to them as cofactors and transition elements, and depending on which protein it might be with, whether it's an enzyme or a, a brain protein, uh, and that. Uh, but it's the mineral element <clears throat> that gives the protein its stability and that activates or regulates its function. So that when you change the metallic part of that, the mineral part of that uh, protein, then you also change the morphology or the configuration of the protein. So copper, you would have those protein uh, bundles or protein filaments in the brain that are pretty much standing up on end uh, or they can interact uh, effectively then physiologically. And when you change the copper uh, by, with man- uh, manganese, Then you have a much greater molecular pull or interaction of the the mineral with the actual protein part, and so it distorts the uh, shape of the protein, and it's that distortion then that changes its function. If you have a, a magnet and put it against some iron filings, you'll Notice how the filings kind of stick up yes. as they are attracted to the, to the metal. Well, uh, like having different forces of, of magnet that would change the shape of those filaments as they're interacting there with the magnet. I don't know whether that's a good analogy or not. But,
1: I, I, got a uh, good, I got a good visual on that. And why is that problematic then?
0: Okay, it's because that, it's that morphology of the protein that uh, controls its function. And when you change the physical structure or the morphology of the protein, you also change its ability then to interact with those other elements that it is involved in from a physiological standpoint, whether it's an enzyme or whether it's uh, a brain protein or or other types of proteins there. It's that morphology that's important. And what the chelators do then is... and glyphosate would be very similar, it's a sister compound in and, and some respects to Fosmet that they, the uh, chelators then because of their uh, attraction and different strengths to different elements, they can bring about the exchange of the metallic part of that uh, metalloprotein, and in that process, and change the physical structure. So, Purdy's concept was that uh, you have this very strong mineral chelator goes right down the spine. It's systemic; it's absorbed into the body of the animal moves to the brain, especially where you're pouring it right down the spine of the animal, a cow or that, uh, moves into the brain where then it has a stability constant that's about a 100 times greater for copper than it is for manganese, very similar to glyphosate, so that you see that exchange then that distorts the shape of the protein and also its function. When you distort the shape, you distort the change the function, and it's that changed shape and function that gives it its ability to self-replicate and to uh, be resistant to heat and to other uh, proteolytic enzymes and many of the other common things that would destroy a, a regular protein then a prion is resistant to. don't know whether that explains it very well, but it...
1: Well, it uh, explains it some, somewhat to me, and but the overall thing is it, it doesn't sound good. <laughs> it doesn't sound
0: like we're, it's a we are We're still struggling to fully understand it, so we're working from... Uh, you know, from hypotheses, uh, from the bacterial standpoint, they, the concept is that this is really an infectious entity that, that is uh, really triggering that whole change in morphology of the protein.
1: I saw something uh, in the news just recently that the EPA is considering uh, allowing thiomethazam, which is a, a neonicotinoid, to be sprayed on about 165 million acres. What what can you tell us about that?
0: Well, in general, we're in a a class uh, organic phosphate. Uh, Most of those are endocrine hormone-disrupting chemicals. And any exposure to it uh, isn't a good thing physiologically uh for us any should be zero tolerance for any endocrine hormone disruptor, whether it's glyphosate or or any of the other uh compounds there. So uh depends on how it's used, its extent of use and uh uh what the exposure levels are and but any any exposure to uh, an endocrine hormone-disrupting chemical is going to be very damaging from a developmental standpoint of most organisms.
1: Yeah. One of the areas that I'm a little bit confused about, and maybe uh, you can share some of your expertise, is about the CRISPR technology. Proponents claim it's safe and predictable and it, sh- it doesn't need to be regulated. Do you have any thoughts about the that technology?
0: Well, most of the genetic engineering type technologies that we're using are based on fossil science to start with. Mm-hmm. Our understanding of how genes work is really primitive. And so we're doing a lot of things. We know how to do things, how to disrupt the system. We don't really understand what we're doing in that whole process because we only look for certain things. And CRISPR is just a gene silencing process. But it doesn't matter whether you're inserting or whether you're, you're removing, editing... You're deleting uh, genetic material. Our current concept of genetics is that it's a matter of the spatial relationship of the different nucleic acid uh, components the pro- and uh, the protein entities. It's the spatial relationship that's... Uh, Uh, interacting with the environment that determines what the function is. So when we sequenced the human genome 50 years ago, we had anticipated uh, a 100,000 genes in the human genome because we know we have more than that functions. And our concept of genetics at the time was one gene controls one function. Well, we know that's not the case now because when the sequencing was complete we only had uh, about 20,000, not not well over 100,000 genes in our human genome. And uh, so we had to, uh, to abandon that concept of one gene, one function. Well, that Genetic engineering, whether it's CRISPR or gene editing or whether it's uh, insertion, is still based upon that one gene, one concept, or one function concept, but that's not the way it works. It works by one gene may have literally a 100 functions, And it depends on the environment and its relationship to other genes that are going to determine what that particular function is. So that with all of these genetic processes, when you disrupt the integrity of the genetic code, you have many mutations and many changes in function that take place. We don't look for those, to start with. We don't even know what to look for in most cases because uh, a lot of these new proteins that are produced have never been seen before. They're new to, new to science. And a uh, good example of that being a very serious problem was, as Steve Drucker points out in his book, Alder Gene's Twisted Truth, that uh, when they genetically engineered the bacteria to increase the uh, production of the nutrient uh, L-tryptophan, that one of the side effects of that uh, increased production turned out to be a fatal toxin or a fatal protein that was produced, the uh, phenylalanine diamide, that was in minute quantities as a contaminant in the L-tryptophan nutrient supplement. But within two weeks after commercialization, 80 people were dead from anaphylactic shock, and they estimate now that up to 10 or 10,000 people are permanently incapacitated, even though that was pulled from the market. Well, you can imagine what the damage is from... The chronic toxicity, uh, in contrast to what we saw with the L-tryptophan with an acute toxicity, so it showed up almost instantaneously from the anaphylactic shock, but uh, it takes 30 or 40 or 50 years for chronic toxicity to show up. So we have no idea what's down the road for us with a lot of these new proteins because they're not tested, they're not studied, are not even recognized uh, as being produced from that alteration of the genetic code. So CRISPR fits in, in that same disruption even though it's a silencing or they call it an editing type process uh, rather than an insertion. It still changes that uh, spatial relationship as it's influenced by the environment.
1: So in, in my layman terms, uh, the CRISPR technology could have random effects on our genes. In essence, it could turn one gene off and turn an unintended gene on that we may not want to be turned on. Is, is that accurate?
0: Yes, no question. In fact, that's been demonstrated. And some of those genes that it turns off are very critical genes for us, even though they may turn off a function in a, in a plant, that that uh, CRISPR effect is going to be functioning and picked up in the digestive process by both our microbiome as well as even our own genetic code uh, are the way we have those enzymes in our own genetic, not the enzymes but those, that genetic system in our own genetics that can also be turned off uh, with that technology.
1: I want to go back to glyphosate and just say, I have two two more questions about this When we spoke, I think the first time we spoke was in like two thousand eleven or twelve and uh, I asked you a question about DDT which we know has been banned and uh do you still feel that glyphosate is uh is more of a problem than DDT ever was?
0: Oh, they're not even in the same ballpark. Uh, DDT was used to reduce disease. Uh, glyphosate, by its nature and function, increases disease. So that uh, they're two opposite two two opposite poles from a function standpoint. Uh, uh, glyphosate, uh, has about, has a similar residual life to DDT, about 20 years, uh, in many of our situations, um, it, so there are a lot of similarities in, in some of those areas, but as far as tro- toxicity, both chronic and, and, uh, direct toxicity, an environmental impact uh, glyphosate is much more extensive and much more damaging than uh d d t
1: yeah, and it's so interesting because uh yeah pretty much everybody you speak with knows about d d t but uh I can't tell you how many times i'll mention something about glyphosate, and people have never heard of it still, which um
0: well, you, you tell the lie often enough, and it starts to be believed, and it's been, yeah. we've been yeah. told it's so safe all the time, and yeah. uh, <clears throat> that, you know, the only only living things that don't have the shikimi pathway are mammals, and so we were told it can never be toxic to us, but the problem is, all of our GI organisms that we rely on for health, and immunity and defense uh, are all very sensitive to glyphosate and they all have the shikimate pathway
1: Yeah. Uh, and my last question about glyphosate is in your opinion what do you think is one of the best ways to detoxify your body uh, from glyphosate
0: well glyphosate starts with accumulates in the brain in the bones, bone marrow, and then in liver, heart, tissue, and all of your tissues in your body. But it's uh, highest accumulations in the brain, next in the bones and bone marrow, and then <clears throat> in the liver, kidney, and, and other organs. Uh, so that it, it's been bioaccumulating in a lot of us for 30, 35 years. But getting rid of it's another story, and uh, there are several things that the research is showing now. Dr. Monica Kruger showed that uh, humic acid or the humates and uh, fulvates were able to remove a lot of glyphosate. Dr. Dana Stanley in Australia is showing also uh, tremendous benefits from. Uh, the humic acids and clinoptilolite uh, a uh, zeolite farm that uh, has the ability to change that microbiome into the, a more beneficial environment and uh, remove glyphosate in the process. Uh, those are the general approaches that are showing promise now Uh, with all of them, you're removing, when you remove the glyphosate, you're also removing a lot of your essential minerals, so you need to be taking a good mineral supplement if you're taking the humic acid or fulvic or, uh, kind of pillow-like materials then to uh, essentially detoxify.
1: I didn't understand that one word you just used. That clinophilite. I, I, I've never heard oh. that. Can you can you spell that it's for me? Cl-
0: it's C L I N O P T I L I T E. Okay. Clinophilite.
1: Okay. It's
0: a form of zeolite.
1: Okay.
0: Now, there are eighty-two or more forms of zeolite, and you need to be careful with a lot of those because when they're ground down to a functional, none of them are really soluble, but when you grind them down into a functional relationship where they're in that entrapment mode, uh, you can have a a fiber effect similar to uh, asbestos. The Mm -hmm. clinoptilolite maintains its tetrahedron structure so that it's able to grab on or to entrap the glyphosate without having the uh, fiber structure. So what it is is essentially a ground-up crystal, but it maintains the uh, uh, structure of the material. But by grinding, you get a tremendous increase in its sorptive capacity. So most most of it today is used in uh, all <clears throat> cat litter or cat litter and that type of thing because it can absorb ammonia and other materials. And uh, glyphosate is a synthetic amino acid, glycine, then can entrap the. Being trapped by the clenoptilolite and then it's passed out through the feces.
1: Oh, wow. Uh, and, and I think at one point you we were talking and you mentioned a product, and I think it was called Zeolite AV. Okay.
0: Do you, that, do you, that's, uh, that's that's uh, clenoptilolite with a little humic acid. Okay. Uh, in Europe, uh, they market a product called active vomin. Uh the V is a check mark and uh, brand brand name I think that's primarily uh, humic and phobic acids and that just a little capsule that you can take and, it, uh, and
1: what's that called again active, active what
0: uh, a- active woman. So I don't you know saying? how that translates into English that's a- the German
1: Okay, active
0: uh, Okay. I believe that's the, the name.
1: And they're and they and they're using it somewhat over there to detoxify from glyphosate? Is that what Right. Is? Okay. I'll have to find out about that. It's, so. it's
0: a commercial product. Uh
1: okay.
0: I think there's there's some research I know going on here with the fovec acids that uh, in clinical trials it looks very promising. Uh, uh, sauerkraut juice, raw sauerkraut juice, is uh, with activated carbon. The activated carbon alone hasn't shown much response, but with uh, in combination with raw sauerkraut juice, has uh, also been shown to uh, both help gut the gut microbiome restabilize as well as remove some glyphosate uh, from the body
1: well that's easy enough to do sour produce you can go to the grocery yeah. store and buy that
0: well except when they pasteurize it they take out the probiotic aspect that's probably involved in that uh, but the uh, lacto- lactobacillus bifidobacteria, and other organisms that are in that fermentive process Are very beneficial to our gut microbiome uh, and those are the organisms that glyphosate is so toxic to so uh, it gives an opportunity from a probiotic standpoint at least to regenerate as long as you change your diet.
1: Right, yeah. Yeah.
0: You're going to keep uh, treating them to glyphosate Uh, they don't last too long. That's One of the problems with a fecal transplant for uh, uh, irritated bowel or autism or any of those other 16 diseases that it's uh, a cure for if you get the right donor, uh, that you have to change your diet so that you don't keep killing it off.
1: Right. It's not a quick fix, that's for sure. Well, Dr. Huber, this information has just been wonderful today, as always. And uh, I know you're um, doing ongoing research uh, along with others, and we appreciate all the great work you're doing to assist us and humanity. So thank you for being a guest on our show. It's always just such a privilege to speak with you.
0: Well, thanks, Carol. Keep up the good work there. Uh, we need all the help we can get with the onslaught of, uh, these chemicals that we keep dumping in the environment, and the so ones that are really suffering are this young generation that's coming along. You look at their health status, and it's it's an atrocity from what it should be, Yeah, and, uh,
1: I totally agree, and that's why the education is so important.
0: I was happy to see uh, Dr. Michelle Perros book uh, in print on what's making our children sick.
1: Yes, uh, I interviewed her about a month ago, and uh, what what a wonderful book. I think every parent and yeah. actually probably every pediatrician or doctor needs to read that book.
0: Yeah, very well done and tremendous help there.
1: Uh, yeah there's a lot there's a a lot of people that you know are assisting and getting the information out and you're one of the big ones so thank you again for being a guest on Food Integrity now and thank you to our listeners we'll be back with another new show in a week or so so thanks again